Good morning. Trust that you can tell I'm not dad, and uh, he's gone today. And normally that means we get out early, but uh, last night as I was uh, getting ready to go to bed, I decided just to look through the notes again that I had intended to share this morning. Um, last month when I covered for dad while he was away, we looked at a portion of Philippians chapter 4. My intention all along has just been to move further into Philippians chapter 4. But uh, I have this file in one of my computers that's just 23 years worth of messages, a lot that I did here or other churches over the years. And one of them wasn't really labeled well, and I just opened it up out of curiosity to see, well, what's that message? And uh, then I ended up reading it, and it's one of the longest messages I've ever shared anywhere. Um, I know it's Super Bowl Sunday, and you probably all have like things that you're preparing for meals or whatever. Don't care. I'm just going to talk for a while. <laughs> um, this is the early service. I guess in the second service, everybody will get up and leave when they want to leave, but uh I want to share this with you. I, I couldn't get it out of my head last night. Um, this is a message I've actually shared a couple times in a couple different settings, perhaps one of those times here. But often throughout my adult life, I've had people ask me, well, what's your favorite verse of the Bible? And it really, the answer to that depends on what day you catch me. Um, because at different times in, in life, there have been specific passages that I have just needed to hold on to. And this particular passage, though, um, I think is probably one of the favorites for all Christians. It comes from Romans chapter 8, and it's verse 1. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And what an incredible thought, that there is no condemnation for us if we are in Christ in Genesis chapter 3, if you study that story, when sin enters into the world, there are three primary effects of sin coming. First one is this, that we're guilty before God. You see that show up immediately when Adam and Eve do what God told them not to do. They understand we're guilty. We've done wrong. The second thing that happens is shame before God. So they know they're guilty, and immediately they start trying to cover themselves. Third thing they do is what we all do. They go hide. They try and conceal it. It's just fear-based. They're afraid. And so these three things come with sin. You have the sense of guilt, the awareness of guilt. You have shame, and then you're afraid. Three primary consequences of sin. It's important to see all three of those because throughout Scripture, woven into the Gospels, you see this threefold thread of God's activity, his response to our sin. You see it show up immediately in the story in Genesis chapter 3. What happens? They sin so they know they're guilty, they cover themselves in their shame, and then they go hide from God. What's God's part in the story? God comes looking for them. He seeks after the guilty. What else does he do? He covers their shame, and he protects those who are fearful. And we see this woven throughout the entire story of the gospel throughout scriptures. It's really this holistic um, approach to the gospel. 
This is important for us to always be mindful of because guilt is a universal experience. All of us understand what it is to do something and then know that is, it's wrong. I got my driver's license in California, and maybe you've heard of the California roll, but I'm very good at the California roll. Um, coming up to a stop sign, pretending to stop, but not really stopping, and then rolling on through. I can't tell you how many times as a young driver, I rolled on through and then looked in my mirror and saw lights. My insurance was very expensive until I was about 30. I rolled through a lot of lights, but that sense of guilt that would come over you, like the second you saw the light, like, oh, I'm busted again. I did it again. And it just confirms when those lights come on, I, I did it again and I was wrong. And, you know, you run out of excuses. Like, there really is no excuse when the officer says, why didn't you stop? And I didn't feel like stopping. We know what it is to be guilty. If you're um, in a marriage, you know what it is to say something to your spouse. And the moment it leaves your lips, you're wishing you could pull it back. And you see the look on their face and you think, why did I say that? And then you just run and hide for a while in your shame and your fear. There is a sense of right and wrong that's just built into us. In the culture around us, there's this idea that there's not an absolute sense of right and wrong. However, those that would say, well, there's not an absolute sense of right or wrong, they end up getting themselves caught into a trap because they make up all these arbitrary rules for what is right and wrong. Even if they say things aren't absolute, in their own head, they have this working idea of what's right and wrong. And if you don't align with everything they say is right, then they think you're wrong. We, just, we, we know what it is to have this thing written upon us. We can't really escape it. We know when we've done something wrong. And there are all kinds of ways to try and overcome our guilt. There's a thought process. There's an intellectual way to trying to overcome our guilt. Maybe we just try and dismiss it and think, well, I'm just human. Humans are faulty. I don't really need to feel guilty for this because we all do it. Everyone's doing it. Maybe there's an intellectual approach that's a little deeper than that. We can try to redefine what our morals are or what morals in general should be. And so we can make ourselves feel better by just saying, well, I do it, so it's right. And the things I don't do, those are still wrong. Then there are physical ways that we try and deal with guilt, which leads to all kinds of addictions, whether we turn to whatever substance or vice that we might turn to physically to try and just escape it. Maybe there's another extreme that we go to and it's just having a busy life, just trying to distract ourselves with all the different things that we can be involved in just as a way of distracting our own mind, our own heart from our guilt. As long as I can just stay busy and I don't have to think about it, then everything's fine. Maybe, just maybe, we trivialize guilt by entertaining ourselves in sports, Super Bowl Sunday, becoming a fan of this or that. So if we can just keep focused on things that are fun all the time, then I don't have to really think about the seriousness of guilt. Perhaps the worst way of trying to overcome guilt is religious ways. This is the most deceptive of all. 
maybe if I just do this routine or if I just lead my household, my family in this way or that way, it'll make up for my failures over here. There's all kinds of ways the world says to deal with it. Psychologists, counselors' offices, they are full every day. If you try and get into see a counselor in this area, plan on waiting a month or so, maybe two, because there's just a shortage, because people with all kinds of complexes are saying, I have to have help. One of the biggest drivers is this sense of guilt and shame and fear, things they've done in the past that they wish they hadn't done that are just driving them crazy, that they need help with. I want to submit to you there is an answer from Scripture, and it's just that verse that I read. It's understanding what Romans chapter 8, verse 1 really means when Paul wrote these words, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I'm convinced this is the essence of the gospel, that there is no condemnation. There are a lot of reasons like why Christians should get together, why we do get together, whether it's in a church setting or some other social setting or just sitting over coffee somewhere and talking or whatever your beverage of choice might be. There's reasons for Christians to get together and just to fellowship and encourage one another. However, if at the core, your interactions with other people, supposedly of the faith, is not centered in being in Christ, you are wasting all of your time. If we aren't here to know and experience and worship Christ, we're totally wasting our time. If he isn't God, if, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, we should be pitied more than all people on earth, as Paul's understanding. We worship the living God. We know God in Christ. We are called to experience him in that way, to be in him, to have him be within us. And so this morning, as I'm talking about Romans chapter 8, verse 1, and this incredible promise that there is no condemnation, we can't separate it from being in Christ. And so I want to just give you three pictures from Scripture that are revealed to us about who Jesus is and what he does. These are very familiar stories. We're going to start in Mark chapter 2. You'll recognize these stories right away. But Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, is an incredible picture here. And the context is this. In the first chapter of Mark, Jesus is going all over the place, healing people, doing all kinds of miracles. And people are starting to show up wherever he goes, and they're lining up uh, roadways through towns, going up to people's houses, watching what he is doing as he goes from town to town. And it's a pretty intense picture in Mark chapter 1. People coming to see what Jesus' ministry is all about. And you get to Mark chapter 2, and let's just, let's just read this. It says, A few days later, Jesus again entered Capernaum, and the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. 
Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking in themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. And I want us to see a picture here, and the picture is the power of Christ at work. And we see this on two different levels. The first one is what he's, what he's doing immediately for the paralytic. He says, your sins are forgiven. So the first part of the power of Christ at work is his authority to remove our sins. These four guys that are great friends to the paralytic, they bring him before Jesus. He's on a mat. It's a really unconventional way of getting a preacher's attention to just put a hole in the roof and drop someone in, but that's what they do because they're great friends and they know we have to get him to the Lord. We expect Jesus to kind of heal this person because we know the stories of the gospel and we, we understand that uh, these people that were coming to him, he was doing miracles for them. These four guys that have this incredible faith to dig a hole in the roof and drop their friend on the mat, I think they're believing, hey, Jesus is going to do something if we can just get him there. But everybody else in the crowd had to be in shock and wondering what is about to happen now. I don't think anybody in the room or the four guys that dug the hole and lowered him down on the mat, I don't think anyone expected what Jesus did first when he said, son, your sins are forgiven. A little backdrop. Remember that in this day, especially in the Jewish mindset, for someone to have this kind of disease, this kind of paralysis, in the Jewish mindset, they would have attributed it to that person's sin. See this in the story of John 9. Somebody sinned and it caused this judgment or God to do this as a punishment on this person's life. And the reason that he's paralyzed is God's doing this to him. That was the mindset. This guy, for however long he had been a paralytic, had been living with this stigma that he was under the judgment of God for his sins. So Jesus talking to him this way, right out of the gate, saying, son, your sins are forgiven. He's saying, I'm going to get right to the root of the most important issue. You are not under judgment for sin. 
Ultimately, the biblical truth across all scripture is that sickness and disease and ultimately death are the result of sin coming into the world. If we back up to that Genesis chapter 3 story. But Jesus gets right at the heart of what this guy really needs. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And this is an incredible claim. For Jesus to be able to forgive sin, to have the authority to forgive sin, basically meant he was equating himself with God. The mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis, who was a one-time atheist, who turned Christian professor and theologian, he was talking about this particular passage and how big this moment was for him to realize that for Jesus to claim to forgive sins was to acknowledge, I'm the one. Jesus was saying, I'm the one that you've sinned against. I'm the one that you've offended. And I'm the one who forgives you. This is a really silly claim if he is not God. The religious leaders that were there that heard him say this, they are not buying it. And they're asking the question, who's this fellow think he is? I mean, what's this guy got going on. Jesus knows exactly what they're thinking, which is further evidence of who he is. And he looks at them and says, I know what you guys are thinking, but let's just test this. What's easier for me to say your sins are forgiven or to take up your mat and walk out of here? Then he says, in order that you believe that I have the authority to forgive sins, he looks at the guy and says, get up, take up your mat, and walk out. So he has the authority to forgive sins, but he also has the power to heal our suffering. Both are on display in this story. Your sins are forgiven, and I'm delivering you from your suffering. It's important at all times that we understand he starts with the core problem. Our core problem isn't the momentary issues that we have in life or the long-term issues that we have in life that might make us very uncomfortable. Our core problem is guilt before God, that we've all sinned against a holy God. Every single one of us, without exception, will also stand before God and give an account for our lives, all of us. It is a scary thought to know that that's the coming reality if we are trying to somehow cover up our own guilt in intellectual ways or physical ways or religious ways. If that's the core issue, what we need is to have Jesus say, son or daughter, your sins are forgiven. And to understand, he actually has the authority to say that. This is a picture here of what Paul was talking about. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, where Jesus says to you or to me, I forgive you. That is always our deepest need, to know that we stand before him forgiven, that in Christ we are forgiven. I want to skip to a second story here. And I want to see not just his power on display, but this story, he tells us of his purpose. 
John chapter 3, another passage that will be very familiar to you. Right in the middle of it is John chapter 3, 16. We ask, well, what does it mean? What's the context? I like to see John chapter 3, 16 in the full context of this whole story from verse 1 to verse 21. Starting in verse 1, it says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he can't enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. Well, you are Israel's teacher, Jesus said, and you don't understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that its deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Quick recap of this story. Nicodemus is a smart guy. He's an intelligent man. Kind of like a leader within the Supreme Court. He knows all of the laws, and his job was to guard the law and to protect the law. Born a Jew, part of the covenant people of God. One of the major teachers in the first century. He comes to Jesus and he starts this conversation about the kingdom of God. And Jesus looks at him and says, you can't even see the kingdom. There's no way you can comprehend the kingdom unless you're born again. Of course, this is perplexing to 
this guy at his age or any age, if we just put ourselves in his shoes thinking, well, I'm already born. I wasn't just born. I was born a Jew, part of the covenant people of God, and I'm actually a leader of the people of God. What on earth do you mean that I have to be born again? And how would that even happen? And Jesus begins to talk to Nicodemus about how Nicodemus had given his life to religion, understanding and observing all the rules and regulations of the law. The Pharisees understood all the biblical rules and laws, and they made even more. They were doing all of that to try to earn favor with God and right standing before God. And Jesus says, you've done all that, but unless you're born again, it all means nothing. It doesn't count at all. And as Jesus is having this conversation, he backs up to a historical story that Nicodemus would certainly know. It comes from Numbers chapter 21, and there's a story in Numbers where the people of God are wandering around in the desert because they've been rebellious against God, and there's snakes amongst the people, and they're biting the people, and the people are dying. It's a terrible story, not a happy story or even a great happy ending, but Moses prays to God, and he says, God, please save us. God says to Moses, take a serpent and put it on a pole, raise it high so everybody amongst the people can see it, and when they look at the serpent, they will be saved from dying as a result of these snakes. All they have to do, Moses, is look. So why does Jesus use this particular story and this example as he's talking to Nicodemus? He's telling Nicodemus there is really nothing you can do. As a teacher of the law, I want you to know, Nicodemus, there's nothing that you can do in your power. It's beyond your power. It's impossible for you. No matter how many rules and laws and regulations you follow, you cannot do it. What you can do is look. You need to look somewhere. And he answers the question. He says, Nicodemus, you need to look to me. God so loved the world that he is giving me, and whoever believes in me will have eternal life. Nicodemus, it's not about what you can do at all. You cannot remove your guilt by following religious rules. This is a huge truth for every person who's heard this story and understands it since. You cannot do it on your own. You cannot remove your guilt without him. He alone can do it. At this point, we're seeing the purpose of Christ in this story with Nicodemus. This is also twofold. His power was twofold. He could forgive sins because he had the authority to forgive them and he could heal us he could take away our suffering but there's a double purpose or a twofold purpose in what this story is revealing as well he's telling Nicodemus I've come to stop you from all your efforts of trying to remove your guilt intellectually physically religiously all those endeavors they really need to cease you cannot do it Nicodemus Likewise, we cannot do it. He says, God sent me. He sent me to you. He sent me to the world, not to condemn it. 
Jesus is saying, hey, I didn't come here. I didn't show up to condemn these people or to save these people, separate groups. I've been sent to save all who will look to me. Do you realize what he's telling Nicodemus is the world's already condemned? He's telling Nicodemus that includes you. You're already condemned in your sin. And what you need is somebody to come in, not to confirm your condemnation, but to save you from it. He says to Nicodemus, stop trying and trust in me. Just look at me. Come out of the darkness of sin, hiding in it, trying to cover it up. Come into the light. Let your guilt be exposed, Nicodemus, is what he's saying. And here's the beauty of it. When your guilt's exposed, I will remove it from you. He goes further. He says, Nicodemus, not only are you forgiven, but he also says you can have a completely new start. You can be born again. You can start all over. You don't have to constantly make up for things in your past. I've come to give you new life. Be born again by the Spirit of God. Don't be dependent on your regimented observance of all these rules and regulations. Be dependent upon me is what he's saying. I will give you new life. John chapter 8. This is the third story that I want to look at this morning and incredible story. If you're turning there in one of your Bibles that has study notes, you might notice that this story has something around it, some kind of bracket around it, and maybe a note at the bottom. It says they aren't sure if this story fit within the original manuscripts for John. But most biblical scholars, if not all biblical scholars that are believing Christians, would say this is a factual story about Jesus during his ministry. John chapter 8, again, gives us a picture of this idea from Romans 8.1, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we'll just read it, starting in verse 1. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery and made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery and the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? 
No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. I want to work through this for just a moment. Because we know this story so well, we quote it sometimes when we're in arguments with people, when they're pointing out our guilt. Let him without stone, our sin cast the first stone, basically saying, leave me alone, you're a sinner too. Sometimes we, we have a surface level relationship with the stories that we know very well. And we need to think about them deeply on a regular basis. Jesus is passionately committed to upholding the justice of God. And when these guys come to Jesus, the teachers of the law, and they're trying to trap him, they're putting him in what they think is a no-win situation. I suspect that they had been looking for this kind of opportunity for a little while. And they bring this lady before Jesus and say, this woman was caught in adultery. And if you back up into the law, Deuteronomy chapter 22, Leviticus chapter 20, the Mosaic law was pretty clear. She should be stoned. And so they're wondering, as they set this trap, are you going to go against the law of Moses and not stone her? Because if you go against the law of Moses, it's going to be really easy for us to disqualify you as a teacher. At the same time, if you uphold the law of Moses, you're going to be seen as harsh. Because everybody here is going to witness you sentencing this woman to death. They will watch her be executed by your command of upholding the law. And so they're thinking, this is a no-win. We're going to squash this guy's movement before it goes any further. They've put the law in front of him. Sometimes when we think about this story, we might be tempted to think, well, Jesus just goes light on the law here. If he had gone light on the law here, the teachers, the, the Pharisees, they would have had a great time going around saying, Jesus does not agree with Mosaic law. He does not agree with God's sense of justice. Sometimes we think, well, Jesus left the law behind. We have grace now. There's no need for law. God's justice really isn't that significant or that important because it's just all grace. That is not biblical. That's not what's happening in this story in any way. Jesus is passionately committed to upholding the law and the justice of God, and he is not light on sin in this passage. In fact, he's heavier on sin than these guys are ready to be. Nowhere in John chapter 8 does Jesus say that this woman should not be stoned. Please know this and hear this and always remind yourself of this if you're thinking of the story. There's no place in John chapter 8 where Jesus says, no, don't, this woman shouldn't be stoned. That's not what comes out of his mouth. It's almost like Jesus takes that as a given, that she should be. 
It's almost as if he's saying, okay, you guys are right. The law says there is a very serious penalty for adultery and sin leads to death, even stoning, as it says in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And he says basically, okay, let's take the law to its next step. Let's take the law to its end. But if you back up and you study those laws that these guys all knew, go to like Deuteronomy chapter 17, where it talks about an accusation like the one that they're making, there would have had to be witnesses. It wouldn't be just one person, but there would have had to be witnesses. And the law says that those witnesses that bring the person forth and make the accusations, they have to be innocent of that same crime. If they are not innocent of that same crime, they're not allowed to carry out the penalty. So Jesus is not minimizing the law in any ways. He says, let's do this. Let's take the law to its fullest extent. He says, go ahead and throw stones at her. But he just reminds them of the law. The one that can throw the stones is the one that's innocent of that crime. Those who have kept the law, be my guest, throw rocks. All of a sudden, these guys start backing away. And who knows what Jesus was writing in the ground. I, I've heard all kinds of funny suggestions, like Jesus was maybe writing the name of the person they had the affair going on with. I don't know. But it was clear these guys were thinking this through. He's saying we can go ahead and carry out the law, but he's also reminding us the law says we have to be innocent to do that. We're disqualified, and they're scared. It's clear they understood he knows our sin. He knows our guilt. All of them are disqualified. From the oldest to the youngest, they recognize we can't do this. And the picture is so intense. And he says, let him who is without sin throw the first stone. Later in the same chapter, in John chapter 8, verse 46, John drives home the point that Jesus is without sin. He is without sin. All of a sudden, as these accusers leave from the oldest to the youngest, and they're all gone, this woman finds herself face to face with the one who has authority to condemn her, if he so chooses, but also the only one who fulfills or fits the requirement of the Mosaic law to be able to carry out the penalty for her sin. He's the only one there that's sinless, the only one that can say, I have the right to go ahead with this and stone you for your sin. Jesus and Jesus alone was able to do that because he met all the requirements. This woman shouldn't feel too encouraged yet. She doesn't really know what he's going to do. And so he asks a question, where are they? Who's here to condemn you? She looks around and says, they've all left. No one of them, none of them are here. And then the one who is left, the one who has authority to condemn her, the one who has the ability to meet the criteria of the Mosaic law, 
says to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The only one who had authority to condemn her says, I do not condemn you. The story doesn't really stop there. If that's where our thinking stops on this story, let's wake ourselves back up for a moment and ask the question, where's the justice of God here? She had violated the law. The justice of God, if we could back up in the timeline of the Gospels and the story of salvation, the justice of God will be seen just a few weeks from this point in time. It's not very much longer when Jesus knows, I'm going to take up a cross, and I'm going to take the condemnation that this woman deserves, and not just hers, but the condemnation that the whole world deserves. I'm going to take that upon myself. Jesus was able to say to her, I do not condemn you, because he understood the reason he had come. He was coming with this radical um, desire and ability to uphold the justice of God, while at the same time extending the mercy of God. It's an amazing picture with Jesus saying, I'm passionate about the law, I'm passionate about God's judgment and his justice, condemnation will be given. However, I'm going to take that upon myself so that you don't have to experience it. And he says to her, go and sin no more. This is exactly what we need to understand when we read Romans 8 verse 1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The first part of Romans is really difficult to read. If you start at like Romans chapter 1 and you read through chapter 3 verse 20, it's a horrible picture of our condemnation, what we really deserve. That the wrath of God is being revealed in heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men. Not a pretty picture at all. Paul spins all the way to the middle of the second chapter of Romans explaining how sinful the Gentiles are. And you can almost hear the teachers of the Jewish law saying, yes, we agree, Paul, we agree. They are horrible. They deserve God's wrath. And so Paul turns the table on them and he says, okay, all of us that think we're the chosen people, the covenant people of God, the people of the Jewish faith, I'm going to turn my attention to all of you and say, you're all guilty as well. We are all guilty. Romans chapter 3, verse 9, he says, there's no one righteous, not even one. No one who understands, no one who seeks God, all have turned away. They together have become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Our throats are open graves. Our tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on our lips, and our mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Ruin and misery mark our way. The way of peace we do not know. There's no fear of God before our eye. Whatever the law says, it says to all those who are under the law, 
so that every one of our mouths will be silenced and the whole world accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. In other words, all of us that think we understand all the rules, all those rules do is tell us we've failed and we're guilty. It gets to verse 20. And whether he's writing and puts his pen down and paused for a second, I can imagine this was an emotional, overwhelming moment for Paul understanding the full weight of the guilt of all of us before God. Luckily, he kept on writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. Verse 21, he says, But now, a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known. The righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. It's a very good verse to know. Not that we fall short, but that we are justified freely by his grace. But then pay attention to what he does here. It says, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. He is just. He is righteous. His condemnation is poured out. Yet he still justifies those who have faith in him. How is he able to do that? Because the condemnation was poured out on the one and only son. So just like he could say to the woman, Neither do I condemn you. You are forgiven. You have a fresh start. You are set free. Go and sin no more. He says to us, he says to you, amidst the weight of our sin, you are free. He says, ladies and gentlemen, you are free. Go and sin no more. I don't know the particular stories of your past, what things might weigh heavily on you at different moments of life. I don't know the guilt that you have felt for falling short in areas of life. Maybe as a spouse, maybe things you did when you were younger that still weigh on you. Things you did in different relationships. Things that nobody else knows about. I don't know those things about your personal life, but I do know this. He says, through Christ Jesus, you are free. And that's why when I get to Romans chapter 8, this is an incredible celebration for those of the faith that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he has justified us through faith in him. There's a continuing struggle, right? We don't reach perfection here. There are great opportunities day to day for us to fail 
and to feel guilt and shame and fear and get caught right back in that cycle. The Apostle Paul is one of the most brilliant men who ever lived, and clearly he loved Jesus. But in Romans 7, he is all over the map, right? He says, I don't understand what to do. What I want to do, I don't do it. What I hate to do, I find myself doing that. He's saying, it just gives me a headache thinking about it. Ever feel that way? I know the right thing to do, but it's just so hard and I didn't do it. I know what's wrong and I shouldn't do that, but I did it. Paul recognizes this about human nature. He says, what a wretched man am I? Who's going to rescue me from this body of death? And then he has the answer. Even when it feels like his head's spinning a little bit, the answer is this, thanks to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's who saves me, this wretched man that I am, and rescues me from this body of death. The one who says, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the most important question that will ever need to be answered in your life. Not, did you go to church? Did you know the do's and don't list of the church that you hung out at? Did you know the rules and the laws and all the things you were supposed to observe? That's not the most important question. At the essence, it's are you in Christ? Do you know Jesus? Do you have a relationship with the living God? If so, this is for you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The one who has the authority and the power to condemn you says, I have forgiven you. And I'm just in forgiving you because I took your condemnation upon myself. Go and sin no more. Incredible that he loves us that way and has done that for us. We should live as though we are truly free. All right. I have no idea what time it is. We're just going to stop here. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. You are just. You are holy. You are righteous. And we recognize that you would be right if you had condemned us. But in your mercy and in your grace, you've given your son for us who bore our condemnation and the wrath for our sin so that you could say to us, neither do I condemn you. There is no condemnation. Go live free. May we be filled with joy and with peace because of that. May our souls experience the rest that you want for us as we experience that, knowing that it sets us free from those endless cycles of trying to deal with guilt in our own ways. Set us free from shame or from fear or need to hide from you. But Lord, being set free to just rest in what you've already accomplished as we look to you, the author and the per perfecter of our faith. I pray that these truths, this picture of who you are, sets us free this morning. 
in all the days to come so that we can live in a way that honors and glorifies you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Everyone have a great day.